And so this morning begins a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would add your blessing to the reading and the proclamation of your holy word. Father, I pray that uh, your word would have its full effect in our life, delivering us from the empty way of life that... uh, the world lives that we might live in the freedom and joy that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, to get started, I want you, if you were married, to turn to your spouse and say, our marriage is pointless, useless, and absurd. Wait, don't anybody do it. Please don't anybody do it. I'm going out of town for Thanksgiving. So I won't be around for marriage counseling. That's a shocking way to start the sermon, isn't it? But that's exactly the way the book of Ecclesiastes begins. Look at verses 1 and 2. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, All is vanity. The New International Translation translate verse verse 2 as meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The writer, who is King Solomon, begins his book by saying that the whole sum of human existence is utterly meaningless. It is vanity of vanities. Then Solomon takes the next 12 chapters to prove his point, and he proves it in painful detail. As he moves through Ecclesiastes, he says that pleasure is vanity. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold... This also was vanity. Then he says, wisdom is vanity. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Then when I have been, then why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have long all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool he also says work is vanity in uh, chapter 2 verses 18 and 19 i hated all my toil in which i toil under the sun seeing that i must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. He says that the accumulation of possessions is vanity. In chapter 2, verse 21, a man, uh, I'm sorry, a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. He says envy is vanity. 
In chapter 4, verse 4, Then I saw all the toil and all the skill in work uh, come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. He says that the accumulation of money is vanity. In chapter 5, verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. He says that living a long life is vanity. In chapter 11, verse 8, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. But then he also says that being young is vanity. Chapter 11, verse 10, Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Basically what he's saying here is that your whole life is vanity. So listen to chapter 3, verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. And yes, he also says that marriage is vanity. In chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, the grave, to which you are going. Sounds pretty depressing, doesn't it? What is such a book doing in the Bible? What is Solomon's purpose in writing such a gloomy book? My purpose this morning is to introduce you to the book of Ecclesiastes. And Lord willing, we will understand and appreciate Ecclesiastes when we arrive at the end of this sermon. And we will look, hopefully, with joyful anticipation to the rest of this series in Ecclesiastes. Notwithstanding the preacher who's attempting to preach it. To understand the book of Ecclesiastes, we need to understand the word vanity. Vanity is a Hebrew word, uh, the Hebrew word havel. Uh, it literally means breath or vapor. It's likened to a puff of smoke that occurs when you extinguish a candle. Or it's likened to, and you Floridians may not understand this illustration, uh, likened to the cloud of steam that comes out of your mouth on a, on a cold morning. I'm hoping to experience at least one or two of those days up in Atlanta next week. Solomon's point is that life is like that. He's saying life is insubstantial. Solomon's point is that the harder we try to get our hands on life, 
it slips right through our fingers. It's transitory. It disappears as soon as it comes. Here today, gone tomorrow. And so his point is that life is pointless. That it is utter emptiness. Why would Solomon write such things about a world that God created? Well, the answer to that question gets us to the heart of the matter. Solomon knows that we live in a fallen, in a broken world. Because of sin, the world is wrecked. Everything, to use a little southern slang, everything is, is out of whack. Romans chapter 8 verse 20 says the creation was subjected to futility. Solomon gives us several clues that the fallen condition of the world is why he is presenting such a gloomy view of the world and our life in it. We typically don't read Hebrew, so it's easy to to go right by the clues that he lays out for us right at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes. So when he, when he uses the word man in verse 3, the word for man is Adam, A-D-A-M, uh, with a southern dialect, Adam. When he uses the word vanity, it is the word Habel, which is spelled exactly as the name of Adam's firstborn son, as we pronounce it in English, Abel. And remember, Abel was born, he grew up, and then he was murdered. Uh, I guess he was his second born son, right? Cain was first born, um, as I think about it. But uh, he grew up, and then he was murdered by Cain. And then... Uh, He uses the word toil in verse 3. And it reminds us of the frustration that was attached to Adam's curse in the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Remember Genesis 3? God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it, eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you shall return. And so he uses all these clues, all these little words to connect us back to Genesis chapter 3, to the fall of man. And he's essentially saying we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a sin-wrecked world. And Solomon wants us to be honest about that. He wants us to be honest about the troubles that we experience in life. He is telling us about the futility and frustration of life in a fallen world. And he is showing us the vanity of life without God, so that we can finally stop, uh, stop expecting the things uh, or expecting earthly things to 
to give us lasting satisfaction. He wants us to learn to stop living for the things of the world and start living for God. Solomon made many mistakes in his life. The book of Kings chronicles in embarrassing fashion all of his mistakes. But Solomon repented at the end of his life. And so he's saying to us in the book of Ecclesiastes, don't make your own mistakes when you can learn from an expert like me. Solomon's method is to put himself and also put us, when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, in the shoes of a person who is living without God. So he might be putting us in the the shoes of a humanist or a secularist or a person who may give only um, uh, mouth, uh, confession to God without living for Him, without considering what it means to be devoted to God and trust in Him. He shows us the ending point for a person who starts his thinking from the viewpoint of man and the observable world. And no matter how you slice it, their lives end, or their lives are and exercise in utter futility, and then they die. Solomon explores life, and he pushes his investigations beyond the place where most thinkers would hesitate to go. The great thinkers like to end their, their investigations of life or philosophy with glimmers of hope at least. Ideally, they'd like to, to think that their thinking gives people hope and the things that they are promulgating uh, are helpful to people. They don't want to say, well, the end of all my thinking and my lifelong pursuit of knowledge just uh, causes you to despair. They don't want to do that. But Solomon, he takes an axe to the root of their faulty, wishful thinking. He's showing us what life is really like without God. He is demonstrating all the pretense and false hope that we try to achieve in this life. And He is doing this so that we might reject that, that we might really live by living for God. The world is living a lie. But they have no choice. Without God, they still have to live. They have to, they have to cope with existence that is void of meaning and utterly without significance. And so they make up significance. And we Christians get caught in the same lies. We jump into the river of the flow of culture and we float right along. Although we trust in God... Sometimes we are so in the flow of culture that we live as functional atheists. We reach for the same illusionary hope that the world so earnestly seeks. We play make-pretend. We pretend that if we get the promotion or 
if we see our church grow or if we bring up good children, then our lives will have significance and will leave a lasting legacy behind us. We pretend that if we change jobs, we'll be more content with our bosses and our co-workers than we are in the job that we currently have. We pretend that this year's vacation will bring greater satisfaction than we've ever experienced before. We pretend that this year's Black Friday purchases will satisfy us past New Year's Day. We pretend, we pretend, we pretend. The book of Ecclesiastes says no. It says stop living the lie. Stop pretending. In Nazi Germany, parents gave their children to go fight a war and die violent deaths based on a propaganda-driven lie. Millions of Germans died chasing a gigantic lie. They ruthlessly murdered six million Jews pursuing what amounted to vanity. Take a look at your life and your priorities. Take a really close look at what you live for as you read the book of Ecclesiastes. Let wise and repentant Solomon be your guide. Is there any hope in the book of Ecclesiastes? Pastor, are you telling us to center our lives around morbid introspection? No. I'm not telling you to do that at all. There is great hope in the book of Ecclesiastes. Look with me at the end of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Solomon says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. After Solomon has taken 12 chapters to level every false hope. He zeroes in on his main point, and that is, fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. After saying that, I'm sorry, after saying that nothing matters, all is vanity, then he says, one thing matters. Fear God and keep His commandments. Let me ask you, 
we've got a lot of concerns in our lives. A lot of things are happening in our world. A lot of things going on in our families. A lot of us are traveling uh, this upcoming week to go visit family. Do you have that one thing that matters most as the center of your life and your purpose? What about it, young people? You've got all the world ahead of you. You look at all the different things. You're learning new things every day. Are you letting those things distract you from the one important thing? The one duty that is the center of what God calls you to do. Fear God and keep His commandments. Now this begs the question, if we are such sinners, living in a sinful, broken world, where's the hope that we'll really fear God and keep His commandments? Well, remember how we read Romans chapter 8, verse 20, that said that creation, that all creation was subjected to futility? Well, the next verse, the continuation of that, of that sentence that began in verse 20, says in verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The promised freedom that is being spoken of here in verse 21, in Romans 8, 21, came in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ entered into our creation. He entered into our brokenness and futility of life and He set creation free set creation free from the curse by becoming a curse Himself. By that same curse, He set us free from our bondage, from our bondage in sin, and brought us into true freedom, the true freedom that we have as children of the living God. In other words, Christ, I'm sorry, in other words, in Christ, our lives have true meaning and significance. In Christ, we are not just born into this world to die. In Christ, we have eternal life. In Christ, we are not living each day as one step closer to hell and eternal damnation. In Christ, we're going to heaven. In Christ, we're not enslaved to disobedience and sin that, that the human race has been enslaved to because of Adam's fall. In Christ, we are set free and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So now it is our great delight and our joy to fear God and keep His commandments. In Christ, we are not children of wrath, but children of the true and living God. This is the destination that Solomon is taking us to in the book of Ecclesiastes. Will you listen to him as we pray together? Almighty God, sin 
is very powerful. It broke all of creation. But the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is infinitely more powerful. Because He, by His death, by His glorious resurrection and ascension to your right hand, has taken what is broken and has recreated it into perfection. So that we who were broken and enslaved by sin now experience the glorious freedom as children of God. Now, as children, it is our great delight to fear You and keep Your commandments. God, I ask that You would set our our um, our vision aright. Help us to see the world as it really is in Jesus Christ. And help us also to see the world as it is without God. That we might grieve over those who have no um, redemption that we might grieve over those who are without hope and without God in the world. God, help us to see the world as it is um, by those who reject You, that we might not fall into the same trap, that we might not pretend and chase after things that we think will bring us significance and fulfillment when they are vanity of vanities, like a smoke that, uh, that we are unable to take hold of. Lord, help us as we read the book of Ecclesiastes this week. Help us as we begin this series uh, in this glorious book. Help us to look to You. Help us to fear You and keep Your commandments, for this is our whole duty. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.